There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Enter the truth and movies. Today, Luke Besson's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Worth a Luke, but not his Besson. We'll be discussing that. Also, England is mine. Heaven knows he was miserable then, as Morrissey gets an origin story. And brace yourself for the original Spice World as we return to June in this week's Film Club. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Still there, listeners? Then off we go uh, with a packed show featuring the vocal talents today of uh, Adam Woodward. Hi, Adam. Hello. And welcome back to Michael Leader. Oh, thank you, James. It's Not at all. Yeah. Is it? Because mm-hmm. last time you were on, we discussed two of the worst films I think that either of us had ever seen. Um, certainly, Transformers and the Book of Henry. Yeah. And I think this week might give it a run for its money. Really? I'm certainly not excited about these two movies, I must okay. say. I was going to say, any, any better luck this week, but mm-hmm. apparently not. We, you know, we were talking about Valerian, obviously, and uh, England is mine. Before we get anywhere near them, though, a couple of uh, bits from a very bulging mail sack this week. Greg Evans has been busy. He says, I've just watched Hounds of Love. Very good film, but why do most Australian films make the country look like a depraved hellhole of misery? There's no obvious answer to that, is there, Adam? No, I've not been to Australia, so I can't vouch for Mm. for that either way. But While Australian filmmakers, maybe have a little think about that. Liz Seabrook totally agrees with the continuity errors uh, over the weather and Dunkirk that we mentioned last week. She says, it would have taken a bit longer to get the weather right, sure, but Inaritu made the effort for The Revenant. I'm sure I've pronounced Inaritu wrong, haven't I? Is I think it? that's... I've never heard that pronunciation. Well, there's it. an accent on the A, but back to Liz's point. Anyway, sorry. Inaritu made the effort for The Revenant. Uh, I'm sure budget wasn't an issue, says Liz. Uh, you too can complain about continuity in Dunkirk or, or anything else that's on your mind. Uh, via email at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. All at LW Lies on Twitter or the Facebook page. And, and one day, of course, Adam, as we mention every week, we will have our very own podcast page. Coming very soon. Very, very soon. Not as soon, though, as our review of Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. If you don't help me find Valerian, then this bullet's going to find you. You're up first. No, 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 no. It's to avoid such situations. And all of our information. is divided three ways. Kill one of us. And you kill the information. What a pity that would be. Okay, you're going to have to give me credit, though, because I don't have much on me. Oh, how tiresome. If the commander were here, he could use the converter to pay us. But he's been abducted. Precisely because he had the converter on him. Uh, unless, for security reasons, someone else was carrying it on them. Mm. 
How in space did you get that info? It's not info. Just deduction. We know how humans work. Mm -hmm. They're all so predictable. Clearly, you've never met a woman. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Calm down. What do you want to know? Valerian's exact location. Hard to tell. But we know how to track him down. With complete precision. How much? 100 battles. Each. Forget about it. This is all I have. Uh -uh. Yeah, diamonds are less valuable than that. The negotiation <laughs> is over. We trust you. And under the circumstances. We accept the deal. Good. Now take me to Valerian. Now. Follow us. Yep, Valerian, directed by Luc Besson, based on the French sci-fi comics of Valerian and Laureline, uh, which were first published, I think, 50 years ago, all about uh, two special operatives for the government in the 28th century who uh, run around maintaining order in the universe. In this specific case, the two, played by Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne, investigate a dark force which is threatening the city of a thousand planets, which is this vast metropolis floating in space as you do. Uh, Adam. Yes. Uh, it's 20 years on from Luc Besson's rather exciting and colourful space from The Fifth Element. We were hoping for another one of those, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, when when the trailer dropped for this one, certainly that was the first thing that sprang to mind. And I was very much hoping for, for a sort of return to that world. I, th I think the last couple of things he's done, he's did uh, Lucy with Scott Johansson a few years back, which I think was, yeah, one of his sort of better recent efforts. Um, and this one had everything, like, ticked a lot of boxes for me before seeing it. Yeah, quite an interesting young cast. I was I was very intrigued to see Cara Delevingne in a sort of bigger role because she's she's just sort of appeared in a few things and I've been quite impressed with her. But yeah, it's it's a big step up for her. And Dane DeHaan's more known as a, a, a kind of like indie actor, I suppose. Mm. And I think their lack of chemistry is probably the main problem I have with this film. It is an astonishing lack of chemistry, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that certainly seemed to me a huge issue with this film, the, that casting question about specifically Valerian himself. You've also got some really interesting decisions plot-wise, Michael. Well, they have this huge tradition uh, from the comics, uh, dozens of volumes running over 40 years to choose from, and it's this sort of mishmash of ideas. Valerian Laureline, their first mission is locating a strange artefact that is uh, being held by brokers in a, an interdimensional market, which mm. is a great, crazy idea. Actually, that's probably one of the aspects of the film that gets closest to the fifth element with a sort of really off-the-wall sci-fi concept right. where it's this large desert with a, with a gatepost and then you put on VR headsets and suddenly this humongous, the world's largest market, the universe's largest market appears around you. Um, but then it becomes very strange as it goes on. There's this strange uh, avatar-like, I'd say, uh, alien race that are invading Valerian's dreams. And he needs to figure out what the story is there. Mm. OK. Yeah, it, it seems to get bogged down in a digression after in introducing quite an interesting storyline at the very beginning. And the, and the marketplace sequence, I thought, was a huge enjoyable romp. At that point, I was thinking, I'm not sure why the, the reviews are so bad for this. But then I kind of discovered as the film wore on. That, that sequence is great. And yet it doesn't feel particularly futuristic. But we're kind of already there with VR. I don't know whether that is plucked directly from the but comic it's not, books. It's not, I mean, just to be really boring, it's not actually specifically VR. Mm. It is actually entering another dimension, which is what makes... There are some quite neat twists in that sequence, all about moving from one dimension to another. So there's a device that Valerian puts on, which is like a box that you put your hand into so that your hand can manipulate things in this other dimension, but your body is still elsewhere. Mm. And it's, it's a very interesting concept, but it's only one incident at the beginning of this film yeah. that very soon gets forgotten in the way to the plot. But this is... The uh, 
by all accounts the most expensive European film ever made, and it was. Uh, made independently of the the major studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luc Besson contributed his own salary into it and essentially, therefore, has, has self-funded it in part. Is that behind what's gone wrong with the plot line on this? Is is it a little bit like Lucas going back and doing the prequels? There was no adult supervision. Well, yeah, it's funded by his own production company. I'm not sure what their previous... Oh, so, well, that's what I find fascinating about this film is that Besson, since uh, Joan of Arc, uh, the, the follow-up to Fifth Element, which was a box office bomb in the late 90s, he's played it quite safe. He went back to France, founded Europa Corp, which is a production company, and they've played it very safe making these low-budget, kind of trashy B-movie type films, like the Transporter series, the Taken series, very profitable movies, and made their own studio. They've, they've made the sort of chinichita of Paris on the Seine. Did they make Lucy as well? And then making Lucy's success. the most recent one. Um, and now he's he's taken all that goodwill, all that good business sense, and sunk it into a two hundred million euro uh, vanity project based on comics he loved as a kid. Right. Did they, they also did the Kevin Spacey cat comedy uh, Nine Lives, I believe, which has, oh, really? has left them <clears throat> already f- fiscally a little bit teetering on the brink. So I, one worries about what exactly this is going to do because so far the returns have not been great on the outlay. No. And I was just going to say before, I'm not sure what their highest spend has been on a film. Mm. Lucy maybe would have been would have been it but this one just feels like too much like did it need to cost that much money I'm not sure um, mm. I'm not sure where that exactly has been spent the CGI is a very CGI heavy film it's quite interesting I suppose uh, in certain I mean you mentioned that sequence early on and I think there's some scenes later on that, that sort of touch on that a little bit but um, it doesn't necessarily for me come together as like a, a piece of world building a piece of storytelling on on the scale that he's going for i mean the title is very evocative and suggests that you're going to be immersed in this i mean the city of a thousand planets and yet you it's a it's a bit of a whistle stop uh, tour through you probably it. see 12 or 13 yeah you planets, don't you don't yeah. get a, a sense of like there's actually a thousand i guess the planets are more like individual microcosms of different alien cultures and right um, i think it's a shame that it that it's following fifth element 20 years on because fifth element was an incredible coup on luke besson's part to make a movie with hollywood stars but completely independent of hollywood it was at the time france's biggest budgeted film of all time and galmont's biggest movie and every element of that film was designed and created by french talents mm-hmm. um including actually jean-claude mezier who's the artist on the valerian series was a consultant on the design and look of fifth element so it looked like nothing at the time. Whereas now he's working, even though he's working outside the system, he's still employing Weta Digital in New Zealand to do the CGI. He's clearly influenced by Avatar and, and, and other um, sort of sci-fi blockbusters since Fifth Element. Actually, I think that this film could have come out in 1999 alongside Lost in Space and Farscape and Men in Black and so on and been very at home in the way it looks mm. and the way it feels. It doesn't really have much of the smarts or even the sense of adventure or the sense of world building that we're used to in blockbuster cinema now. You mentioned, Adam, the the lack of chemistry and and at the heart of that is perhaps a a massive casting error. I I didn't have an issue with Cara Delevingne. I thought she was actually pretty good for what the part demands. But Dane DeHaan, how did he wind up being Valerian? It is a a valid question, I think, because he's supposed to be this roguish, womanizing, um, very cool space cadet type, almost like sort of proto Han Solo. Mm. And yeah, he's he's really doesn't convince in that role at all. And um, the whole film, he basically tries to uh, woo Cara Delevingne and, and, and actually he's quite forward in, in asking her to marry him, mm. uh, which seems like a very weird, conventional, quite conservative thing. I mean, you talk about the film visually belonging in the 90s. I think a lot of its ideas with relation to like 
um, the roles of men and women yeah. in the universe belong in like a different bygone era as well. There are quite a few good cameos in this film, and one of them is Ethan Hawke mm. as a sort of crazy, sort of a, a pimp, I guess. Mm. In 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 this, his uh, name is Jolly the Pimp. Yeah, uh, in in this space sci-fi version of a red light district, and that definitely sort of feeds into this strange mishmash of um you know is is this regressive or is this uh is this forward thinking it doesn't seem like a futuristic sci-fi mm. and one of my favorite cameos as well as herbie hancock the right. the jazz fusion you know master Pioneer, just turning up as a defense minister uh who every now and then comes and spouts some some exposition <laughs> yeah i yeah i enjoyed seeing herbie again after all these years so we've got issues with the casting yeah we've got a plot that gets bogged down in a kind of weird side street and never really comes back from it you've also got the Rihanna interlude what's mm. going on there is this her Ed Sheeran in Game of Thrones moment well did she, it work for you she's been in some films before she was in uh, Battleship a few years back yeah. and I mean I don't think again it's kind of similar to with Cara Delevingne I don't think she's bad in what she's doing because she's given so little to work with I mean she's basically playing this shape-shifting stripper um, who is in the film for maybe five minutes, doesn't really get a lot to do. I, I kind of found that whole digression quite frustrating, actually. Yeah. And as a shape-shifting kind of being, she's only Rihanna for maybe half of those five minutes yeah. as well. That's not a spoiler, is it, James? No, no, that's not That's not a spoiler. <laughs> All right, what did you like about the film, then? I love the opening sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, the opening sequence sets a space oddity for David Bowie, where it, it begins with a montage. It starts... Uh, in the 1960s, and it's basically a montage of the entire of the entire history of spaceflight uh, from now until the 28th century, and it has a particular great shift in aspect ratio for all you aspect ratio fans. It starts off as a 4:3 TV screen looking at the the NASA missions, and then on the the guitar twang that opens up the song of Space Oddity, uh, the screen widens. And there's also some strange Luc Besson vanity bits in that as well, where all of the the Earth representatives you see them meeting various alien races as mm. the thousand planets. Come together to create this this new alliance and all of the earth representatives are french directors like olivia megaton and 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 co uh, for whom you know, from the, the taken and transporters uh, franchises uh, which is very bizarre but i love that opening sequence it's right. almost such a good opening sequence you wish the film was better beyond mm. it go along for what maybe the first 45 minutes to an hour and then and then leave would oh, that I'd be say the, the first five or ten minutes really not even the market sequence the market sequence is fine but again i think it, it it's one of those things where the comic books, which he obviously loves, Luc Besson, he's cribbed so much from them. But those comic books have influenced so much of what we know today as mm. like the touchstones of modern sci-fi filmmaking. And this film just feels so derivative of those films, not only the comic, but like it, especially that market scene takes a lot from like um, Blade Runner and Total Recall and even The Fifth Element and yeah I just think it it felt it felt very unoriginal to me really yeah okay I thought it was quite a fresh twist myself but as I say my excitement my enjoyment at that point tailed off rapidly (laughs) rapidly after because Cara and and Dane spend a good deal of the movie apart which means you don't really make any progress but then sometimes they get back together and that's even worse Mm. the the scenes of the two of them together are, are, are truly truly painful to watch would you would which is a shame because i think Cara Delevingne is great in this mm. i think that she, after after a couple of false starts in um in suicide squad and that teen movie she was in a couple of years ago paper homes was it called uh, yeah i think it was paper, paper towns paper towns uh, which is sort of fault in their stars wannabe i think that this is a film where you can see she really does hold the camera really well mm. it's just that the, the character isn't there you wouldn't know for example that Laureline in the comics is actually from the 8th century and she's found by valerian in one of his adventures through time 
You wouldn't know that, would you, James? I would not know that. <laughs> have you read the comics? I've read a couple them? here and, and there. Um, yeah, they are quite good. They Well, they start in the 60s and they're very much... The first volume uh, is, sees them go to 1986 New York after wow. uh, after the ice caps have melted. Uh, what, do you remember when that happened in the 80s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But they're, they're quite good. They're worth reading. They're certainly foundation texts in you know, European sci-fi comics. Brilliant. All right. Okay. Uh, do you want to give this numbers, Adam? Yeah, I think in my review uh, I went three for anticipation, two for enjoyment, and one for in retrospect. Wow. And I think the the one was wow. for, for like this nagging sense that I got afterwards of not only the lack of, I mean, all the stuff we talked about here, but just the kind of film's ideology and, and worldview to me seem very small-minded. And it's meant to be this film about alien cultures coming together, and yet there's something quite insidious about the way that uh, Valerian Loreline's characters uh, actually deal with the alien cultures that they encounter. They basically spend the whole film running around in, in this sort of ignorance, uh, <laughs> being quite aggressive, actually, and mm. antagonistic towards anything that represents a foreign culture or, or language. Yeah, murderous, even. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the number of aliens who die at their hands is, yeah. is, is, is quite elevated, which is bizarre because the film even starts with this paragon of, of, of peacefulness that is this alien race that they're supposed to be helping, who, who then, when they make an incursion, are, are very clearly a non-violent so it's, it's weird that that it, you're right it does feel uncomfortable watching them behave in that mm. way michael numbers so i think in anticipation probably a three I, I was hovering around maybe two or a three for enjoyment just because it is a very colorful movie it does have a sort of rompish adventure feel to it so you're never even though it's just over two, two hours 15 i think you're never fully bored uh, there's always something quite delightful about it and there's a certain some some sci-fi vistas in there that are worth seeing and probably in 2d rather than 3d so you can really drink them in mm. i know when adam and i saw it we were a bit disorientated by the 3d it wasn't very good yeah the 3d is terrible so don't don't bother um and then probably in retrospect two although i'm i'm really excited that this could be we, we very rarely get these movies which could sink an entire studio <laughs> so that would be fascinating to see it's a heaven's gate is it it's a Heaven's Gate, exactly, yeah. or I'd say a uh, Showgirls uh, slash uh, Cutthroat Island wow. situation. My scores, wasn't expecting a lot, really liked the opening, kind of peaking the needle, I think, in, in the red around a four, dropped off rapidly, overall a two, and, and certainly in retrospect probably a two. We'll, we'll move on then, shall we? Let's we'll move on. on. Yeah. Okay, next up on Truth and Movies, it's England is Mine. Dear enemy, Manchester is a lovely place if you happen to be a bedridden deaf mute. The local music scene is the sole preserve of troglodytes whose regard for subtlety and variation is comparable to a pig's passion for the slaughterhouse. The performance was the musical equivalent of a prolonged bowel movement followed by an unexpected absence of toilet paper. In case I haven't made myself clear, it wasn't very good. England is Mine, which is a biopic of one of Britain's most iconic singers, uh, leader of a truly seminal band, but is uniquely set in the boring bit before any of that happened. Uh, Emma Simmons in the list says, Smith fans may well despair and not in a way they'd enjoy. Michael, are you a Smith fan? Um, I've, I've dallied with the Smiths. I grew up in Manchester as well, so it's oh, kind yeah. of uh, unavoidable really. Um, but I think this movie is one for the obsessive fans. This feels like a Manchester music cinematic universe origin story for Morrissey. Right. Um, how Morrissey sort of developed his uh, disaffected mm. uh, poetic superpowers. Mm. But it really is very much 
leads up to the moment that the Smiths formed. You do not hear the Smiths' music. It's it's unauthorised in that regard. So it's more of a nowhere boy rather than a control of him sort of growing up in the 70s and feeling very apart from the punk and post-punk scene there. Right. OK. Adam? Yeah, it's quite unusual for a biopic, this. I wouldn't say it's the story of how... Uh, Stephen Patrick Morrissey became Morrissey, but it's like the story of how he became the man who became Morrissey, which I quite like. It's it's unusual to see a film really spend a lot of time with a character just developing, like establishing who he is mm. and what it is that contributed to, to his personality that developed and, and how he became the... Um, I guess the kind of cultural force and yeah it's the sort of thing that in in another biopic might have been condensed to like a five minute sequence or something. You mentioned Control which is an interesting comparison because another seminal English music figure and it's actually got made by some of the same people in terms of Mm -hmm. the the producers producers. behind it but it's it's a difficult comparison for this film because I found this film entirely lacking in the kind of emotional weight uh, and certainly storyline that, that that control offers. Yeah, it, I, I struggle to to really find the reason for this film to exist. I don't think that Morrissey's early years or his like late teenage years uh, really have much to them. At least with Control or even with Nowhere Boy, the the uh, the John Lennon film, you really had this sense of figuring out the people behind uh, the the great man, mm. the life experiences that made them who they they were, that informed their worldview and their music. In this England is mine, you just see Morrissey moping around in his bedroom, listening to music, uh, typing letters to the enemy, as we've heard, and going to gigs and just not liking anything. Right. Really, he was you know. It, Although he does have a book about the Moors murders and yeah. a picture of Oscar Wilde, so cultural the, influences ahoy. One he thing hangs I, out in cemeteries with, with friends. There are little glimpses yeah. there. One thing I did like about this movie is it has a very good sense of place and time. Nick Nolan, the cinematographer, just peppers the film with so many shots of underpasses and canal bridges. And it really feels, because it's shot entirely in Stratford, which is where Morrissey grew up, and it really feels quite authentic in that regard. And mm. I think the dialect coaching is incredible because uh, I, I was having pangs of sort of feeling of home uh, hearing some of the actors' uh, northern accents. And I think the accent that Jack Loudon, who we saw in Dunkirk very recently, who's Scottish, the impression of Morrissey he does is quite spot on, really, this sort of strange, posh Irish northern voice that he uh, he has. Mm. Someone actually says in the film, like, where are you even from? Mm. You sound so posh. Uh, it's, it's quite a good impression that he cooks up. Okay. Interesting. You also said at the start this might be one for Smith's obsessives. I um, think so, yeah. I, I, I was are a fairly a... major Smith's fan back in the day. And there are difficulties with the figure that Morrissey has evolved into, whether you know politically or socially, or the, the way that he behaves now. But at the time, uh, he represented something quite extraordinary. And if you go back and look at the cultural landscape that he kind of burst into in the early 80s, his role, his importance is, is massive. And, and to do a biopic about him, as I've already kind of said, it's quite interesting that they chose the bit before the good stuff started happening. But to play him in this way for me this film began with a really 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 catastrophic casting decision which is Jack Loudon and never recovers from that because you know Morrissey's a very distinctive figure Jack doesn't look like Morrissey for me he didn't sound like him either the accent might be right but the manner of speaking that kind of Mm. mordant sardonic bitter drawl that never really comes out I never really heard Morrissey's voice and one of the problems with this film is because it's unauthorised because Morrissey is Morrissey they didn't want to use any of his words they certainly couldn't use any of his songs they hadn't even been written at that point so I wondered as well whether that had a part in the fact that the story doesn't really go anywhere we don't explore too deeply 
the role of the other people in Morris's life. It's all very generic. I, I thought it was a little bit Sing Street without the kind of sense of joy. If you, mm-hmm. if you know, it seemed like a story about a boy who gets inspired to go out and be great, rather than a story about Morrissey. And I wondered if you know. Maybe there were issues there about not trying to step on anyone's toes. I, I found it a deeply disappointing uh, film and, and really quite humdrum as well, which given the figure it was written about, I was, like you, asking why on earth did they make this? Well, there's a lot of stuff in there as well of like metaphor uh, for his... Well, I, I'm almost like low to say depression because I, I think that would almost be like giving him a bit of a free pass uh, in terms of the, his attitude and his behaviour. He's quite misanthropic. Um, and just thinks the world is against him. He's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. But there's there's lots of like visual metaphors of like swirling water and rain. And um, there's a line, I think, as well about, oh, it always rains in, in Manchester. And you get this idea that the, the world that they create is very much an extension of his personality and not necessarily how it would have looked or felt at the time. But like mm. the way you experience the film is very much from his, like through his, the lens of his, yeah, his personality. And, yeah, I think these music films work really well when either there's a great biographical story uh, to tell or if it's a bit more essayistic, exploring aspects of um, either the, the, you know, the protagonist's character or their music. And I think that this film does shy away from, say, depression and sexuality and things that people would, would actually be quite interested about Morrissey to see played out. Uh, but then also I feel that, and maybe this is part of this is purely subjective on my part but I feel I feel we've got past telling the great stories of the the great men of of British popular culture and in some ways so one of the great supporting roles in this is Jessica Brown Finlay who plays his friend Linda who actually was one of the major figures in the Manchester music scene at the time uh, she co-founded the very um, uh, with John Savage the the punk fanzine that chronicled the the you know the, the community at the time she you see at one point the magazine um, album real life in the background she mm. designed that cover she had a band herself. She moved down to London and became a very provocative feminist artist. And I was like, I want to see a film about her, mm. really, rather than Morrissey. We know about Morrissey. We, unfortunately, Morrissey has his story has quite a sad end. If you kind of read any interview he's given in the last couple of years, he becomes a bit of a problematic figure the further he goes along. I, I kind of feel we've we've got to that stage now where we should tell other stories rather than the same stories over and get over. At the same time, though, I don't think it like romanticises him that much. And it's quite rare for a film like this to not do that. Mm. Um, mm. I don't think it's a particularly flattering or favourable... No, he looks like John Major, indeed, for much of the, <laughs> of the film, which I found really, really troubling. Yeah, I mean, early on, he's got this... His, he's got this sort of dyed black hair. Oh, I suppose it's dyed black because Jack London isn't uh, hasn't got dark hair, but he's got this kind of Robert Smith thing going on as well. I thought, mm. um, or Adrian Mole. Was yeah, a bit of Adrian Mole <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, I think you, you describe it as being a film for Smith's obsessives. I don't know how much Smith's fans would get out of it, but I think it doesn't actually work unless you have that pre-existing knowledge of who he became and what what is coming next in the story. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just a film about a guy. Yeah, I think every Smiths fan has heard the story about how the Smiths formed when Johnny Marr went and knocked on the door of Morrissey's, you know, two up, two down house, and that's the final shot of this movie. Mm. So it leads up to that. So there are little things peppered along the way. Billy Duffy, who becomes the guitarist in the Cult, um, is there as uh, when when Morrissey dallies with being the lead singer of the Nosebleeds before the Smiths. So there are little things peppered throughout for those Smiths obsessives. I, I don't think anyone who doesn't care about Morrissey or the Smiths, who is vaguely intrigued, would fi- get anything from this movie, though. I did love the final shot, though. Mm. The final shot is amazing. And it's actually, if you've seen the poster for the film, that sort of spoils the final shot. So if you haven't it seen the poster, bit, yeah. don't look at it. Avert <laughs> your gaze. Don't see it on if it's on a bus stop, just like cross the road or something. What was the final shot? 
it's when he comes the to the door, it's through the window. Uh, but yeah. it's the sort of not frosty. The, yeah, yeah, but he does that sort of like. Right. He does this little lift. Okay. And you're so, oh, he, that's Morrissey now. Mm. It's the only time in the film you see Morrissey and really see Morrissey, and it's through this kind of right. haze glass. Final shots, good then. Overall, I'm going to go threes across the board for this because I think there's enough there to enjoy in terms of the performances. I think it's competently put together. There's not enough there that like actively irritated me to kind of go any lower than three. So yeah. Michael? I think probably uh, two, two, three, because I, I think personally, go and listen to the Smiths back catalogue, go and read some of the great writing that had been written about Morrissey and the Smiths. However, it is a good calling card for Mark Gill. I think that it's a it's a well directed movie. It has a vision to it, and Nick Nolan, the cinematographer, as well. I think it, it's, it's going to be a good calling card for both. Okay, I would say three, two, two for me, but yeah, a little bit underwhelmed. All right, let's move on to happier things then, and it is Film Club up next. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes. Woohoo! Each week we watch a classic film in Film Club, a movie you may have missed, or one that's just worth reappraising, which I suspect is the case this week, as with the release of that Valerian thing, we've gone back and uh, exhumed the 1980s sci-fi epic Dune, part David Lynch. Here's a clip. This is part of the weirding way that we will teach you. Some thoughts have a certain sound, that being the equivalent to a form. Through sound and motion, you will be able to paralyze nerves, shatter bones, set fires, suffocate an enemy or burst his organs. We will kill until no Harkonnen breathes Arakeen air. 
Carl McLaughlin there in June. A massive flop at the time, but now what do people make of it? Well, we got a massive response from you, the listener, uh, to June. What, what are some of the things people have been saying? Yeah, probably the biggest response, I think, to a film club uh, pick so far. And uh, Greg Evans... Uh, wrote in quite uh, at length. I'd like to read this out just because it sort of reflects my own experiences of seeing the film as well, which uh, is nice. And he says, I first saw June as a student around 10 years ago. Uh, strangely, me and a few friends decided to watch it before a night on the tiles. Uh, from the opening intro, I was hooked. Usually not a fan of space operas, but there was something perverse and glorious about this film, which I can't quite uh, define with words. All right. That's a shame. Um, which he then goes on to write quite oh, a, a lot more words, which <laughs> well, I won't read out. <clears throat> or inspiring set designs, incomparable costumes, weird phrases, the Toto soundtrack. My word, how good is that Toto soundtrack? And how exactly did the interaction between them and Brian Eno pan out? Because that is a kind of musical dream team. Yeah, I don't know, actually. There's there's a good story there, I'm sure. But yeah. Brian Eno wrote the kind of main theme. The prophecy theme. Yeah, although I, I think the songs and the score that I remembered most from the film, and I hadn't seen it in 10 years or so, was, was definitely the Toto stuff. Those big guitar chords. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Impressive. All right. Uh, other positive reactions, Adam? Uh, yeah, we've got some from Twitter here. Frank Collins says, huge... Oh, well, there's a word missing there. Love. <laughs> I think there's an emoji there. Yeah, it's a big heart. He says, huge emoji for this film. Uh, it's Lynch applying his surrealism to epic science fiction. Almost works, but narratively leaps all over the place. Mm. Robert A. Roy, if you can get past the homophobia, this is a great movie. Astonishing set and costume design. Great Toto score. And Sting in Pants. The homophobia thing, that specifically relates to, uh, relates to the, uh, the, har- uh, the Harricans? Is that what they're Harkonnen? called? Harkonnen. Harkonnen's, yeah. Right. It, I thought they were. It, it was almost more gingerous than homophobic, but I might be wrong about that. I think that. that's more of a, an, an issue with the book as well. Right. I, I, specifically, I think uh, Baron Harkonnen is, is a gay character. Right. Uh, you don't really get that as much in the film. Ah. Maybe in the longer cuts you do. But, yeah, it's, it's an issue with June as a, as a whole. Right. Are, any other thumbs up? Yeah, there's quite a few. Uh, Stephen McCall says, Love June, possibly the film that led to my lifelong sci-fi obsession. Um, it's interesting. It does feel like it could be, uh, well, for a lot of people, it is a, a good entry point for, for sort of hard SF. Uh, it's quite in at the deep end, though, isn't it? Oh, very much so, yeah. Mm. But. Uh, all right, wait, what about the naysayers? So we've got David Blythe, who's Forever Blue, on Twitter. Such a disappointment. A great cast, a big budget, an in-demand director, a befuddling mess. Mm. And on a rewatch, still incoherent. Mm. I mean... I disagree completely. Really? I mean, it's it's pretty incoherent, but I find I find actually watching the new Twin Peaks series, uh, which is people have accused of being rel- relatively incoherent, has given me I don't know, given it's opened my third eye or something. And June just suddenly made complete sense to me watching it now for the first time in ten years. I was similar to Adam and Greg watching it for the first time since university. It just has this wonderful. It's almost the opposite of Valerian. It's pure world building, full of concepts and full of characters and different races and species and religion and and. I just found it a, a transporting experience this time. Right. And, and as, as David rightly says, a great cast. Every scene for the first hour has somebody popping up and you're delighted to see them on screen, yeah. usually with dyed ginger hair. <laughs> it is a remarkable cast. 
speaking some pretty remarkable dialogue, mm-hmm. or even just voiceover sometimes, little whispered. Oh, those little Malachish kind mm-hmm. of voiceover whispers. I thought that was quite interesting. Well, it's this sort of running internal monologue that you, you hop between the different characters, don't you? And mm. I think the film's incoherence isn't really like up for debate, but mm-hmm. it adds to the charm, I think, for me. Um, well, yeah. I guess you could introduce the topic about on another podcast we've just about football we've, we've talked about whether goals are overrated I'm, I'm wondering whether you could introduce a similar theme is, is narrative necessary and I know next week we're going to be looking at a couple of films uh, Under the Skin and A Ghost Story where you know they, they go very light or almost almost without plot and this narrative wise I mean it's just all over the shop plot lines appear disappear and, are, and then are completely contradicted and yet it does remain an incredibly haunting film. Mm-hmm. I mean, really disturbing as well. Some of the imagery is very, very wrong. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's the sort of film where you, you might watch and say, oh, they don't make films like this anymore. But actually, they didn't really make films like this at the time either. Mm-hmm. And it's important, I think, the context of David Lynch coming off the back of uh, A Razorhead, which is a sort of uh, obviously quite underground hit for him, a um, bit of a calling card movie. Then he went on to do Elephant Man, which mm-hmm. won an Oscar. Um, so he was like hot property in Hollywood at the time. And um, I think... Uh, the legendary producer Dino De Laurentiis had been wanting to make this for a long time, and the backstory supposedly Ridley Scott was up to it, and he went off to do yeah um, Blade Runner. Thank you. Whereas David Lynch, so the legend has it, turned down Return of the Jedi to do this. I'd love to live in that universe, that that dimension where we could have got that film, because I think there's a this was David Lynch characterizes this as the one time he sold out, mm. but it's still fascinating to see he loves world building. Anyone who watched the, the the David Lynch The Art Wife, the documentary that came out a few weeks ago, knows that he loves creating a, a world, and he really does throw himself into the world of June. A lot of little bits of business. There's like an inhaler that someone has with a little bug inside that gets squished down. Mm. It looks straight out of a razor head. I'd love to see what he would do in Return Jedi, but I think June, we live in a, a time now where blockbusters are so produced, overproduced, and tell very tight stories and build to a, a large universe like the Marvel films Quite so formulaic. well and formulaically, whereas this film is so messy and so full of ideas. And I think almost in some ways by design, but then also by coincidence where this was a, the original cut, David Lynch's original cut was four hours, right. cut down to three hours, and then cut down to two hours 20 against his wishes. Uh, so you have these amazing scenes that go nowhere, scenes that finish early, the voiceover that is giving you 20 minutes of exposition just to jump through the narrative that they can't show you. It gives it this hallucinatory, dreamlike quality Mm. that actually almost now seems so Lynchian, but was probably just a fault of the cuts that were made to it at the time. Yeah, It is very alien. Not the film. No, not the film, but just the whole kind of, well, what I would describe as a mindset without knowing which particular alien I was was talking about. But it's it's very unworldly Mm. in its... its approach to storyline and indeed performance because we talked about the cast but they essentially played as 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 chess figures almost moved around bits of the story by lynch also it was all recorded in mexico possibly at altitude which would explain why no one can ever complete a sentence (laughs) yeah maybe that's an interesting theory Mm. all um, right yeah, so it's almost a shame that, I mean, I don't know how he thinks of the film now, but David Lynch famously distanced himself from mm. it. And I think on certain cuts, it was credited to Alan Smithy. And it's a shame that I think that he looks at the film in that way, because there's a lot here to be to be proud of, I think. Right. Yeah, and I think people should go back and revisit this if they... If, they if, they've watched, if they've watched any of these Lynch movies since. Okay, the interesting backstory as well to the production of this, Dino Laurentiis picking up the rights that previously had belonged to a, a French group with uh, Alexander Jodorowsky. And there is 
if you want another companion mm. piece, a fascinating film, uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, which details the plans that he had and the quite extraordinary assembly of, of talent he'd put together for this, which included H.R. Geiger, who, of course, then defined much of 80s science fiction through Alien, Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, yeah. Jean-Jérôme Moebius, whose style then massively influences The Fifth Element, and I think even Valerian to this day, there's elements of that. He signed up Salvatore Dali to play the Emperor of the Universe. Mick Jagger was going to be in it, apparently. And there's some great lines as well in the film where he talks about it being like LSD, but without LSD, the effect (laughs) he was looking for. And also later when they complain about the fact that he's completely changed the ending and the significance of the book from the the Frank Herbert's original, he said, yes, but when you get married to a woman, she's in white, but you don't leave her that way. So in a way, making a film of a book is like taking that book and raping it and making something different, but raping it, Jodorowsky says... With love. That's a strange what an- a, analogy. But yeah. What a beautiful image. Yeah. I always feel sorry for productions, especially troubled productions that have the hypothetical production that existed before it. That right. In, in everyone's mind's eye would be perfect. But if people think that uh, Lynch's Dune made no sense, anyone who's seen El Topo and Magic Mountain, yeah. Jodorowsky's Dune would have made no sense. <laughs> Although, and, and this is another, well, this is a nicer analogy from the film. Somebody says that Jodorowsky's Dune was a little bit like an asteroid that never actually hit the Earth, but managed to seed it with space spores as it went by. Oh, and it was the nice. kind of influence nice on Star Wars and, mm. and, and Besson and, and certainly Alien is huge. All right. Uh, there's going to be a new one. Well, apparently so, and it's a nice link to the whole Ridley Scott Blade Runner thing because Dennis Villeneuve, who's currently um, making Blade Runner 2049, uh, is supposedly signed on to make... I think it's going to be, whether it's a series of films or a series or just a film, I'm not Mm. quite sure yet, but it's been sort of long mooted, so it would be interesting to see what he makes of of the source novel now. I I imagine it will be uh, a a version of the book as opposed to any kind of remake of... And a series of books that followed it. Exactly. There was a sci-fi series um, called Children of Dune, in the 2000s that fans prefer to this mm. really but maybe doing that on a larger scale with a bigger budget with Danny Villeneuve would be brilliant I'm sure the screenplay it says here will be written by Eric Roth who wrote Forrest Gump that's an obvious link isn't it <laughs> well then hmm Dune what are we doing next week Adam uh, well, rather excitingly, we've got the uh, director, David Lowry, coming in. His new film, A Ghost Story, we'll be talking about next week. He's going to join us here in he's the He's actually going to be in the studio, uh, which is very exciting. And he's, uh, he's chosen Under the Skin, Jonathan Glazer's film, uh, as, as our film club uh, film next week. Wow, not just any old film, but uh, one featuring Scarlett Johansson as an alien seductress in, in Scotland. Have some fun with that. Uh, listeners, and get in touch with your thoughts. Truth and movies at tcolondon.com. Twitter is at LWLies, and of course, there's the Little White Lies magazine's Facebook page as well. And uh, well, that's pretty much it then. Michael, anything you want to add? Oh, um, well, last time I, I plugged uh, our screening of Taika Waititi's Boy at the, the Prince Charles Cinema, which I did as my Miss Films uh, uh, alter ego. Uh, we're doing another one. We're doing an, uh, an encore screening on August 22nd. And if anyone's seen the trailer for Thor Ragnarok, uh, they, they know that he's a director worth seeing. So we're showing that again August 22nd. Come August along. 22nd. Right. Uh, but in the, in the meantime, I'm going to be very busy in the day job. Film for Summer Screen at Somerset House uh, starts next week. Uh, with the premiere of uh, an inconvenient sequel, the Al Gore documentary, and runs for for two weeks of outdoor screenings, including Jaws and Deliverance and um, Moonlight and all sorts. The tickets are still available if you want to go and check out what's, uh, what's on sale. Right, Adam. No, nothing for me. I, I think just I'd like to give a shout out to another release this week, just right. because I feel like we've been quite down on these uh, this week's films. 
Um, yeah, there's there's a fantastic um, British film basically being re-released uh, called Prick Up Your Ears. It's a sort of biopic of uh, the playwright Joe Orton, who tragically died very young. And uh, yeah, it's one of Gary Oldman's mm. best and probably most underappreciated performances. So yeah, um, Alfred Molina. And, Alf- and Alfred Molina well. is yeah. equally brilliant um, as his sort of uh, lover turned killer. Um, yeah. And yeah, so that's that's back in cinemas for a brief spell. And then it's, I think, going to be available on DVD. So do, do seek it out because it's very much... Um, worth worth watching. Okay, uh, speaking of Moonlight, she, um, I'm, I'm going to be uh, on another film podcast. Yeah, it's called Smirshcast. It's a pet project of this big James Bond fan called John Raines, and uh, I, I'll be strangely though talking about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So, what's he, the connection there for, well, for Sean Bond. Connery? Oh, he it's, does pop up, doesn't he? Tenuous, <laughs> uh, but if you'd like to hear a very very uh, long and and at times quite impassioned appreciation or lack thereof of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Smirsh Cast, sometime next week, I'm told. Anyway, but th- that's it. We're off to the, the cinema to do our uh, swatting up. I do hope we'll see you again next week. Michael Adam, thank you for being with me today. This has been a Seven Digital production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.